The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be a part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesreeatallstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio, we have Pat Swinger, O'Fallon historian and author. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Welcome, Pat. Um, Thank you. One of the things that fascinates me about the areas, St. Charles County specifically, but O'Fallon, St. Peter's, and all the communities around here is the colorful history of the area i like to tell a lot of our guests we have guests come into the museum from all across the country and i like to tell them this was the wild west not too many years back <laughs> i mean nothing really went on west of the mississippi right right, right. and and uh you know and it, it's it's the early settlers had a great influence on this area many of them were for, from kentucky and we had spanish we had french um and the german influence can you can you t- Talk a little bit about those early settlers. Well, I guess the um, relevant history begins really in the early 1800s where there was a, a huge influx of Germans to the area. Um, of course, the Zumwalt's were already here and the Boons from the Kentucky and Virginia region. But um, the German influence came when a man named Godfrey Duden uh, came to this country um, went back to Germany, his homeland, and published a book in 1829 that extolled the virtues of this area, um, its fertile lands, its beautiful countryside, rolling hills, 
and of course its freedom, uh, where a man could have a plot of land and feed his own family from it, not somebody else's family. And so as a result, the German immigration then just went through the roof. And uh, it's it's we make, sort of make a joke out of this that O'Fallon is a, a German town with an Irish name, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll explain that later if we talk about John O'Fallon. Uh, there was a Native American population here at one point uh, that actually just vanished, and we don't know exactly when that happened. It's as, almost as mysterious as you know what happened in Cahokia. Uh, it was primarily Sauk and Fox, Native Americans. And um, that's where the Black Hawk story comes from relating to, to Jacob Zumwalt. So we have evidence that um, the Zumwalts um, were familiar with Native American culture and uh, made, you know, made acquaintance with them once they were, were here. So... Uh, it's an interesting story. So we have the Germans come in. They were abolitionists. Mm-hmm. They were anti-slavery. Correct. And the early settlers were more pro-slavery, were they not? Right. Well, these, these are the people who moved here from uh, the Carolinas, Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky. And, of course, they brought their southern culture with them. So we did have a miniature Civil War thing going on in that the um, the Germans who settled not only in Augusta but then north of the O'Fallon area and west, uh, and then we had the, the southern section that intertwined in the Augusta area, actually, but then in, in O'Fallon itself, the, uh, the Zumwalt's and then the Heels were, were southerners. So... We kind of had these two cultures that were kind of going along, coexisting for mm-hmm. many years, and then we got somewhere closer to the Civil War. Things boiled over a little bit because, I mean, Missouri was, I guess, there was a decision to be made. I mean, St. Louis, St. Charles, and, right. and this area, right? Yes, yes, there was. The, uh, the Heald family um, that bought the Zumwalt plantation or Zumwalt farm. <laughs> In 1817, they always referred to that property as a plantation, and they brought a plantation system and mentality with them from uh, Kentucky, actually. And, you know, you know, one of the things that I read about the area, Arnold Kreckel, I guess, was it sounds mm-hmm. like he was staunchly against slavery and, and had a lot to do with preserving this area for the Union. Yes, he he did, um, and he and he carried that on through the rest of his life. Now, oddly enough, as the Civil War broke out, Arnold Kreckel did in fact own one slave himself, which he promptly freed. Now he, you know, we have to think in terms of the economic realities of those days before we. Um, persecute anybody for for owning slavery in my mind we're we are all live in our own age as best we know how to but um it and it was always told that um frankie price who was jacob zumwalt's second wife um owned a slave at the time of their marriage and family lore has it of course that's 
you know, that's not always accurate. But family lore has it that Jacob um, forced her um, to sell that slave. And, in fact, there is record of her selling a slave um, at that early point. But um, the healed, now the healed, when as the Civil War went on and, and bubbled over, um, some of the members of that family actually formed um, a militia unit with the intention of marching with Sterling Price um, heading south. And you mentioned Arnold Kreckel, who is the brother of the man who is attributed with the founding of O'Fallon, Nicholas Kreckel. Uh, but Arnold Kreckel formed um, a militia. It was called Kreckel's Dutch, uh, you know, Dutch, Deutsch, German, okay? Uh, their primary job, though, was to protect the railroad, uh, the supply lines. But they um, they purportedly held a raid on Fort Zumwalt during Darius Heald's ownership of the property. Um, Darius Heald was imprisoned in Gratio Prison uh, for a very short time. He was a wealthy enough man that he was able to write a very nice check that not only got him out of prison, but got him out of service for the duration of the war. And he, he later pledged his allegiance to the Union. In the process of that raid, um, Darius Heald's father, Nathan Heald's sword uh, from the War of 1812, was stolen. It was later found in a corn crib in a neighboring farm, uh, and it is now in the Fort Dearborn Museum near Chicago. You know, uh, many Revolutionary War veterans settled in the in this area in the early 1800s, just about a mile uh, from here. We have uh, a War of 1812 fort, Fort Zumwalt. It was designed to protect the local families from Indian raids. What can you tell us about the fort uh, and and go from there? Well... Thanks. I mean, I am just so proud of uh, being a member of the O'Fallon Community Foundation and the work we did to reconstruct that fort um, as exact as possible. Um, several archaeological digs guaranteed that the footprint is precisely uh, where Jacob built it. Um, Jacob Zumwalt and three of his brothers served during the Revolutionary War um, between 17... Oh, let me see. i got some notes here. I don't get these dates right all the time. In the 1779-81 era. But they only served about three months out of the year, like a lot of, of soldiers at that time. You know, the reality was they had to go home and harvest plant the crops, whatever. Those were the realities. And their service was not so much in, in an infantry capacity as it was as scouts and, and spies, quite frankly. Um, and that, again, speaks to their relationship and familiarity with the Native American population, that they were able to serve as scouts. Mm-hmm. Well, that's That's fascinating to think about that, but I never knew that, that the Revolutionary War uh, guys, that they took time off. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that either. Farming the crops there. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard there's roughly about 31 Revolutionary War v- 
veterans buried nearby here, you know, and, and some of the old, old names of the county, uh, Cottle, and, mm-hmm. and some of those names come from here. Uh, right, right. But um, so the, our names, uh, you know, the, the other thing I wanted to mention here is it was built as a fort to defend against the Indians in the War right. of 1812. Right. But I don't think it was ever attacked. No, it wasn't attacked, and it wasn't a military outpost either. It was, um, you know, for many years we referred to it as Fort Zumwalt, and we still do. And the truly accurate way would be to just call it Zumwalt's Fort because it was just a homestead fort, actually. Um, It was a fairly large log home for its time. And so the expression is that under threat of Indian attack, neighboring uh, families would ford up for mutual protection. Um, anecdotally, we, we've always been told that there was a stockade fence around it uh, so that as many as 10 families could camp there. Uh, archaeologically, we never could find evidence of a stockade fence, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. That It was built... Um, in several stages, but Jacob Zumwalt had uh, a Spanish land grant. Um, you know, like a lot of, of people who served, especially the backwoods folk who served during the Revolutionary War, you know, they won the war against the English, okay, but now they're being taxed by their own government, and that did not set well. And so they just moved on to the to the frontier farther, so... The um, I guess the fear of the Indian attack, part of it comes from, you mentioned, was it Michigan up in Saginaw? Yes. The yes. family that was up there actually did experience an Indian attack. So when they relocated down to here, they were afraid of that, I guess. And, and that's why they built the uh, the fort here, right? Well, well, no, the, now the fort was prior to that. Okay. Uh, Jacob's fort was built in the 1800 give or take. His, his land grant is dated 1798. Uh, the, the attack you're, you're referring to was the Heald family. Uh, Captain Nathan Heald uh, was commander of Fort Dearborn at the outbreak of the War of 1812. Um, his wife, Rebecca Heald, um, her maiden name was Wells. She was the daughter of Samuel Wells who, by the way, fought with uh, John O'Fallon at the uh, Battle of Tippy Canoe. Oh. Yeah. So during that um, Fort Dearborn massacre um, by Potawatomi Indians, um, Nathan Heald was severely wounded. Um, Rebecca was severely wounded. Um, several arrow wounds, several gunshot wounds. Um, they did manage to, and they were taken prisoner uh, by the Indians, but they did manage to negotiate uh, their release. They went back to Kentucky to uh, recover for a while, and uh, then they moved westward. Um, Nathan Heald and Rebecca Heald, his wife, purchased uh, the Fort Zumwalt property um, in 1817 for $1,000, and it was like 330-some acres. (laughs) Well, there's a number of historic buildings just a short walk from here. 
uh, namely there's uh, a black one-room schoolhouse near here. Can you kind of tell us about some of these historical buildings and maybe specifically about that one? That one, uh, yes. That was um, a school built for African-American children. Um, Sondran Street was known as the, the African-American community referred to it as the Hill. Uh, and it was, well, even when I was a child in the 50s, it was a street loaded with shanties, to be perfectly blunt. Um, I We don't know exactly when that school was built. Um, we there There are no records on it necessarily. Um, we ha- and we have only one photo of it originally. <clears throat> it sits on the northwest corner of Sandron and East Elm. I, th- I think it's a, an ice cream shop now. But um, in 1949, the, um, the one-room schoolhouse in O'Fallon for O'Fallon proper public school children uh, they had outgrown it, and so they tore that building down and built a larger brick schoolhouse, which still stands today, by the way, um, at the corner of School Street and, and West Pittman. And uh, in the process, they needed some place to go with the school children from the O'Fallon Public School. So unfortunately, the sad part of this tale is that the black children were simply... Um, taken out of that building so that the white public school children could attend school there. And they were given a choice of going either to Wentzville or St. Charles to go to school. It's it's not a pretty um, part of our history, but it is what it is. So there's another building that I had learned about and kind of preparing for this. There was a the Woodlawn Institute for Young Women. Now, I knew, knew there was a street <laughs> named Wood, Woodlawn, and yes. I don't think the building is there anymore. Is that where that building used to be? And, and that was Darius that founded that? Or? Darius is one of the principals in founding it, yes. And um, it stood near uh, the, well, the old what we now call Old Woodlawn across from Fort Zumwalt Square. Mm-hmm. That's approximately where it stood. And it was... Um, it was an offshoot of an earlier school called Fairview uh, that was out in Warrington. Um, yes, Dar- Darius was a principal in that. And, in fact, we have some early pictures um, that shows the kitchen help of, uh, of Woodlawn Institute. And they're all African-American, and it, it would be easy to make the assumption that they – they may well have been the freed slaves of Darius Heald. Well, the, the, what's interesting about it is you you've got you've got this like the page was turned mm-hmm. in the area right at the end of the Civil War when they were freed. We have a, a black cemetery that yes. was that was terribly neglected for many many years, and it's mm-hmm. now much better shape. But it's isn't it for the most part. Slaves that are buried there? Um, well, s- slaves and descendants of slaves, let's put it that way, because there there are more recent burials there. Um, there is, I believe, one Cherokee um, 
Native American buried there. But yes, and and there's there's questions as to where um, where that got its name. Um, it may have been from a, a pastor, because there were uh, on that street called the Hill Sandrin. There were three different churches, so it was a very active church community. Um, and one of the preachers was reportedly named Sage, but I've I've always heard too that it came from the sage fields that grew along Sandrin Street. So, you know, who knows, right? There's some questions that just are going to remain unanswered. Sure. <laughs> it's, it, and that's what's funny about the area. I think, you know, we went to a trip in France, and when you're over there, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and <laughs> we're having trouble remembering history here in the States that go back <laughs> you know, 200 years. That's true. I had the same experience in Ireland. You know, we think a building as old as if, if it's 100 years old, and that's, you know, that's just getting started. The ivy's just starting to grow over there. <laughs> and, and it's kind of sad because, we, you know, it, it almost feels like we don't preserve our history well. I mean, certainly when you look at Sage Chapel Cemetery, there there was a lot of slaves in around the area. Yes, yes. And, and they, they were freed. They went elsewhere. and. Mm-hmm. And but it is part of the heritage here that w- that we we don't know very well. Um, but the um, the other after around the time of the Civil Wars, I guess shortly before that, you know, this area is known as the cross world crossroads of the Midwest. I mean, Wentzville makes that claim, but mm-hmm. we're not that far from there. Right. And a railroad really opened up the area, didn't it? It did. It did. I mean, you could make the argument that we're we're a railroad town. Um, Arnold Kreckel, well, the Kreckel family came over in 1832. Uh, Arnold is the eldest son, and, I, and and some of this is just my theory. It's not documented anywhere. Um, Arnold, being the eldest son, was educated, all right, and he became a country solicitor. He was also a surveyor, Um he managed to purchase the land um, on the just north of where, where the railroad tracks are now, and I suppose as you know, uh, an associate of John O'Fallon's, who was president of the railroad at that time, um, said, "Hey, if you'll let you know run a, a railroad through this area, you know, we'll name this the depot after after you," because there was a debate. Um, which route the railroad should go in. Should it take the northern route or go a little south through the Augusta area? Well, the Augusta area is geographically posed more challenge. So they, they took this route. And, in fact, um, Nicholas Kreckel, the younger brother of Arnold, then became a depot agent, postmaster. He opened a general store. So... Um, you know, my theory has always been that Arnold was, in part at least, uh, providing an opportunity for um, a less advantaged younger brother. And speaking of Nicholas, his home still stands today, correct? And yes, it does. Where where is that located at? That's on the northwest corner of uh, Maine and what is now Civic Drive. It was at the time or earlier called Front Street. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. that's not that's privately held. That's not the city doesn't own that. Right? 
No, the uh, I you know I don't know what the actual ownership is right now. I think the city the city did purchase it at one time, uh, but I believe um, the bridal shop owner owns that now. Um, I'm not sure of his name. I believe it's Orf, but I'm not sure. Um, now that wasn't the original structure. The original structure um, was a log, a log structure, um, really just a one room structure, and it was added on. Over the years, there's uh, at the time the city uh, purchased it, they did remove enough of the floorboards that we could see the the large logs in the floor joists and so forth. It was pretty impressive. Nice to see. And he gave permission to the to the railroad to they could cross his land and suggested that the, there was a railroad depot, and that kind of really opened up the immigration. Correct. Well, it, it did. It's not as much that it opened up the immigration. It's that it made the area more viable for new migrants to make a living because now with the railroad, the farmers could go from subsistence farming to profitable farming. You know, it was uh, they could get their their produce to market. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the railroads are coming in here. There's one story about a, a slave. It was in St. Charles, Archer, Alexander. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the uh, there's now a memorial in Washington to him, I believe. And he actually, we had a little bit of feuds during the Civil War, and he actually uncovered or overheard a plot to blow up a railroad uh, bridge not too far out around Peru Creek. But, right. It's near, it's near uh, Lake St. Louis up there. Um, it's Peru Fort was at the edge of Peruk Creek, right? Mm-hmm. So he warned them, and then, of course, um, you know, it saved a, a number of lives. I don't think we saw regular Confederate. There were more bushwhackers around here. Correct. Uh, more than anything else. But it was a bit of a conflicted area around the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, of course, the railroads coming through here made it a much more valuable area, did it not? Well, it did. It did, um, but more of the bushwhacking occurred um, a little to the south of, of O'Fallon, um, where the southern uh, sensibilities were a little stronger. <laughs> How's that for diplomatic? <laughs> <laughs> so... We, we get beyond there, and, and there's, uh, you know, the Civil War ends, and then there's a lot of development. I didn't realize the Assumption Parish just down the road from here mm-hmm. was formed in eight, nine, 1871. Right, right. I, and I'm going to credit Assumption Church with the growth in the town itself. Um, prior to Assumption Church being formed, um, parishioners had to travel to either St. Paul or St. Peter's, uh, to attend church services. So when uh, some of the local nearby farmers um, got together to build a church, that's when the population of the town itself uh, grew. And it it has historically been a German Catholic town. Now, the German influence... um, you know, there's a there's a price for that German influence that we've we've seen it several points in our, our nation's history. And in fact, O'Fallon's first bank was the German American Bank. And we have some of checks and so forth 
from the German American Bank. During World War One, that bank changed its name to the Commercial Bank. Um, despite the heavily German population, they still changed their name. Um, unfortunately, it did not survive the Great Depression. Well, and that's a, that's a good point. As the German influence was so strong here, you know, by the time we got to uh, World War One, there was mixed allegiance. You know, very much so that. I think, you know, people probably did go home, but I think the majority of them stayed here and fought, you know, or joined the army. I think they were very proud to fight for their new homeland, from the the letters I've read and the stories I've heard. So the Assumption Parish kind of opened up the area. It, it offered a close nearby church for people to attend, but there wasn't a school yet, was there? Um. No, yes, it, they did eventually. The nuns, the Sisters of the Most Precious Blood, uh, came to this country from Switzerland, and um, they began teaching the students when they arrived, and, and it, not long after the parish itself was, was organized. And in fact, O'Fallon's first public school was on the, on the convent grounds, um, there were and there were a number of one room schools in the area, um, but the one in O'Fallon proper uh, was the one I talked about earlier on at school in Pittman. So the uh, and and uh, they built a big school somewhere around nineteen ten. Is that what I understood? Uh, more public, a bigger public school, or they were all one rooms up until then, weren't were they not? No, yeah, no, they and they still. Um, we didn't have a larger school until the 50s, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. right, the late 40s. So so there was quite a few local soldiers from the St. Louis, St. Charles County and the O'Fallon area that went and fought in World War II, and, and several didn't come home. Um, I mean, we got some of the names on the wall. Do you, right. do you know some of the you – rec- you recognize the names, I'm sure. I do, I do. Yeah. Um, Peter Westhoff. Peter Westhoff, yes, um, he was the first, I believe, to mm-hmm. come to come home deceased, mm-hmm. uh, to be brought back. Yeah, the other thing that I think is interesting is, um, and you see the you saw that actually all over the country when we fought the Germans. Uh, everybody tried to Americanize a little bit more, mm-hmm. and then you know World War Two rolls around, and the same kind of thing happened. Uh, People change their names a lot, you know. It's it's a, uh, you know, and after Pearl Harbor, you know, um, you know there was a, you know, one of the things that I read about the area that I thought was just fascinating, uh, not only O'Fallon but the county, but you see pictures of people doing air raid drills here in O'Fallon. <laughs> I mean, uh, people were scared after Pearl Harbor. They they were, and the munitions plant in Weldon Springs, I think, fed into that fear a little bit. Now, I, I, how they thought the Japanese were going to make it to the middle of the country, I have no idea. <laughs> but it just, just tells you what fear will do to you. So, yes, um, Mayor Paul Westhoff was uh, the organizer for local air raids, and, and we have newspaper photos of people putting up, you know, the blankets and quilts over the windows and, playing cards by candlelight and huddling down during the air raid. Um, you know, we look back at it now, and it's 
just a little comical, you know, when you consider what was going on elsewhere at that time. But nonetheless, that that tells you um, the level of fear. They even they even guarded uh, the local bridges and thinking, like you said, they were thinking how you know they were going to come over here and get in the middle of the country and do something. But it was a real fear that they had. And uh, can you speak to kind of what? Changed that mindset? Uh, was it some point after the war um, that things started to change where they, they didn't, weren't so proactive in, in these fears and things like that? Or, Well, I don't know that we here locally were different, any different from anywhere else around the country. You know, anytime you have um, a period of oppression, whether that oppression comes from a ruler or from fear or poverty or anything else, and in fact, we've just seen it after COVID. Right. And, you know, there was a spending boom. We started getting back out again and we were thrilled. And I think that's probably um, about what happened, you know, in the early 50s when uh, the worst effects of the war were over and, and prosperity was there. And I've always heard that Dwight Eisenhower was the perfect president for the time. All he did was play golf, you know, so that was what we needed him to do, you know. I think the one thing, the one one thing I've heard about the area is, uh, of course, when everybody came back from World War II, you know, the baby boomers. You know, they, Correct. It was quite the boom. But O'Fallon, uh, this area right around here, it was said that O'Fallon had a lot of churches and a lot of taverns. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I have locals <laughs> come in here to tell me to this day that there was just countless taverns up and down the streets. <laughs> and, and yet I... I, I I don't know the area as well as you. Do you uh-huh. I mean, you obviously, you're chuckling. You, oh, you must sure. have heard the same thing. Well, I not only heard it, but I could show you a picture of a five-year-old Pat uh, in a tavern with, you know, the parents. Taverns were not, uh, taverns were pubs. They were meeting places. Families were in taverns. Um, you know, the I grew up in the in the Methodist community here in O'Fallon where uh, the consumption of alcohol was a tad more taboo. At least we hid it, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, the Catholic community imbibed more, quite frankly. And, and it, it was a, a multi-generational thing. It wasn't, didn't have the evil connotation that we put, make, put on it now. You know, but and they were gathering places. We didn't really have restaurants in O'Fallon, even in in the fifties. There were maybe a couple of diners, um, and so the taverns where you went to eat out. You know, well, it, it's uh, you know the times right after World War Two. I, I think there's probably a whole lot of historians that look at that and try to analyze it. You know, I mean, we built. The economy was built for the generation, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. after that, you know, the jubilant times, and they needed a place to uh, celebrate the end of the war. And sure, like sure. Then there's, you know, there's not only the veteran stories, there's the civilian stories from, from World War II as well. Um, you know, my own mother talked about ration stamps and, you know, cutting out cardboard cutout to stick in her shoe because with four children – or three children at that time, she had um, used up all her leather rationing, right? Or, and uh, she didn't use so much sugar, so this lady who made jelly could take her sugar stamps and give mom her flour stamps. 
and you know, and that kind of thing. And there's many stories of, um, for instance, the town dentist Doc Hibbler. Um, his his wife had, I think, six or seven children at the time that Doc went off to war in, I think, in '42, and uh, her refrigerator went out, and uh, one of the local dealers just showed up with a refrigerator. And and that's what you do in a small town, you know. You don't you don't worry about who's paying for it, when or whatever. If she needs it, she needs it, and that's the end of it. And uh, those are the stories that um, warm my heart. Well, they are, and and I do think it's a very unique uh, area for a lot of a lot of reasons. Obviously, the Veterans Museum, the community really appreciates the veterans. You know, you, when you look at the county today, in, in 1970, the population was 7,000, mm-hmm. roughly. Right. The population at the end of 2021 is 93,644. Yeah. It's a very different, very different area now. Very town, different. Town, city. I'll be honest. If I could stand in the middle of Main Street and wind the clock back to 1957, I'd do it in a New York minute. <laughs> But then on the, you know, the other hand is we've had many, many wonderful people move to this community. Um, and, and, of course, we have the stores and the restaurants that we didn't have. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, um, there were two major stores on Main Street. One was Westoff Mercantile and the other one was Geneman Mercantile. And if they didn't have it, you simply didn't need it, you know. Now, Westoff Mercantile, was that McGurk's? That's the McGurk's building. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a few of those old buildings still standing around the area. There's a few. There's a few. Um, You know, from a historical standpoint, um, someone like me really envies a city like St. Charles that has so much brick and mortar from an earlier era that people can see, you know. And uh, we have to hang on to our stories here in O'Fallon. Um, which is why I, I treasure so much what you guys are doing here at the museum, and you've done a wonderful job, you and Marsha and all the volunteers, uh, preserving the stories, because it's not the war that's important. It's it's the people who lived through it and, and fought it and honored it, and that's the same true with the community. It's not about brick and mortar. It's about, it's about the men and the women who, um, in an era before, uh, a full city staff, uh, they just simply did what needed to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you need street signs? Let's 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 build street signs. You need the road patched? Let's patch the road. And um, I admire that. Those are the values I grew up with, and, and that's what I treasure. The, the idea of, and I agree with you, St. Charles, you know, early on, it seems like it was hit or miss whether that area was going to catch right. on. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's really flourishing now. And it is. It's doing wonderful. Mm-hmm. And and it's just not a given. You can take these old buildings and make it into, you know, as successful as St. Charles. And yet we've got a wonderful number of landmark buildings here, but mm-hmm. not ever quite been able to pull it together. Right. Um, you know, where the museum is located, if there was a historic district, we're one block away from what that would be here. But yeah, it almost looks like an impossible mission now. It does, and um, boy, that's another that's another whole discussion. <laughs> <Jim>. <laughs> you talk about your bucket of worms. 
<laughs> That's a rabbit hole to go down, huh? Yes, it is. <laughs> I guess I just like the idea of preserving. You know, if if you can't preserve your heritage, no one will know. Mm-hmm. You know the history, and you know us. It's our jobs, you and I, people yeah. like you. You know to preserve that, and and uh, the, the young people. I I don't want to say that they don't care about that. I don't think they know right. that they will someday care about that. I, I agree. I And I think it boils down to um, appreciation and gratitude. You can't be grateful and you can't appreciate what you don't know about, you know. And uh, that's, that's what makes a community, that's what makes service. You know, a lot of history in this in the city of O'Fallon, and you know, you mentioned that at one point it it felt very small and and uh, you know, small town like, right? Mm-hmm. But right. it still has that small town feel, you know. And the city of O'Fallon is very uh, friendly, especially to veterans and their causes, uh, amongst other things. But um, what do you think, maybe to correlate historically with the present, why the city of O'Fallon is so entrenched in uh, the values and uh, that they are and how that represents with veterans? Um, I think it's what I just, what I just mentioned. Um, It's gratitude. There's no assumptions. There's no entitlement. There's a a work ethic in the Midwest. I think that you, you may not find in other parts of the country. Um, it's it, nothing's handed out here, and I and I, I I honor that, I respect that, and I think um, when you realize what the people who went before you have done, um, well, I always I always say that hearing those stories, uh, whether it's a veteran story or a mayor's story or a homemaker with ration stamps, that story. Those stories plant seeds when a kid hears them, I believe. And that seed becomes a question. And the question is, how can I serve? What can I do? What role do I play? And that's why I think it's, it's so important to hold these stories. Very well said. So, Pat, I just just to make sure I got it straight, I want to kind of recap <laughs> the historic little buildings that I had no clue of their importance just just days before. So we got an ice cream shop that used to be a one room slave schoolhouse. Well, African American, African American, yes. Um, we've got the Arnold Creckle House. That's a bridal bridal's shop now uh nicholas crackles nicholas crackles house yes, yes that one mm-hmm. we've got mcgurk's that right it, it's closed now but it used to be the west off mercantile okay right. and and then we got fort zumwalt which isn't really a fort it's a the house that was like a fort for jacob zumwalt <laughs> we're saying right just a, just a mile from here we've got the healed house healed house we haven't talked about that stone uh stony point Stony Point, it's called. Right, uh-huh. uh huh. And Darius Heald lived in the fort um, for the rest, well, except for the last decade and a half of his life. In the late 1880s, he built the brick house called Stony Point. And, and we got a log cabin. A log cabin. What? Who were the original builder of the log cabin? 
Well, we don't know who originally built it. Um, it's and it had a, a string of owners from about 1860 till the turn of the century, uh, and it was. You're referring to the Historical Society's Log Cabin Museum, right? Yes. It's in Civic Park, and um, it was it originally stood um, near where the Schnooks is at the corner of Veterans Memorial and or yeah, and uh, Highway K, and when the supermarket, I think it was National actually that purchased that property in the early seventies. To build uh, a supermarket, they started to tear the farmhouse down, which at that time was in the ownership of the Patton family. Now, that's the Patton, Linda Patton Wilmus, the artist who has done so much wonderful work here, her family farm. And when they started to tear it down, they took the clabbered siding off and discovered a log cabin underneath it, which was not uncommon, you know, uh, when they moved to the frontier, they used the materials they had, and as they prospered, they upgraded, right? So um, at any rate, they contacted the city. Um, an alderman at the time, Raleigh Jessup, was forming the Historical Society. So when you pull into Fort Dumont Park, you will see Jessup Drive. That's Raleigh Jessup. His passion for years was the reconstruction of that fort. Um, but at any rate, um, they got permission to tear it down log by log and move it. City gave them permission to move it to Civic Park. And, uh, so the, um, it became the museum. And, and what we're most proud of is the fact that everything in that museum is from O'Fallon. It's not uh, something that we bought, you know, the society bought for someplace else in an antique shop and moved it here. So, it, I, again, the stories. You know, I can take you through the Log Cabin Museum and I can tell you the stories of almost everything in there. So you got the Sage Chapel uh, African American Cemetery right. on the historic register, correct? Yes, uh-huh, yes. We've got the Sisters that are Precious Blood Abbey, which I guess when did... That goes. I was in it for the first time oh, really? about a week ago. I spoke uh-huh. you know, to uh, some of the residents there, and I I had never been in it. And I went in the chapel, and it's oh, pretty beautiful. St. Joseph Chapel is amazing, is it not? It, it, it is. Yes. Uh huh. And and then you got Assumption Parish. So when I mean, there's probably more that I haven't even thought of. But I mean, you could. There's a lot of history here, and you could spend a great deal of time. You could organize a bus trip and. I guess that's one of my visions is can you do a bus trip just around the area here, load people up and show them all these things. Well, one of the things that I'd I'd love to see um, done since we haven't preserved as much as I would like us to have preserved is some kind of a a moving slide presentation. So if a person is standing on this street corner, they can look at a a device that shows them what it looked like in 1922 or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I think that would be a fun project. Absolutely. I think it's um I think it might still be on YouTube if you want to go looking. Um I I worked with the city of O'Fallon to produce a video called Tales from a Small Town. And uh we we did a lot of just exactly that. This was the site of so forth and so forth. It was it was fun project. 
Mm-hmm. How many generations of your family are from O'Fallon? Uh, <laughs> I'm the first. My generation is the first. Uh, my parents moved down here from Minnesota okay. in 1942. Uh, my father, like many other uh, men at the time, uh, got a job at the Weldon Springs plant, okay. the munitions plant. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that's certainly a colorful story in oh. itself about the munitions factory when the government came in and displaced residents of three oh. different towns there. Yeah. Um, it'd be a great story to sell, tell sometime. And, you know, the uh, atomic, you know, I guess it was what a uh, TNT during World War Two, but right. then it, the Cold War, it was, um, well, the, yeah, well, Mallinckrodt chemical, um, did a great deal of, um, research that, um, is questionable in its, um, effectiveness and, and, some disastrous results for the people who work there. Mm. Um, but, you know, no, my my father's role, well, he got a job originally uh, working on the roads, building the roads, but then he they understood he was in refrigeration work previously. So um, he worked in uh, keeping the temperature control on some of the ammunition depots. So, you know, again, St. Charles County, it's quite a history, including... The TNT factory, I guess they guarded the bridge after Pearl Harbor because that TNT factory. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That's so, what precipitated the uh, the raid, you know, the blackout okay. drills. Well, that's an interesting kind of correlation there. It is. It yeah. is. I think that stoked the fears that with the munitions. That brings it to light a little bit more for maybe the listeners that there was something that needed to be guarded in their minds. And Oh, yeah. So there, it wasn't just this random fear. It was a legitimate fear of what was, was actually happening around here. <laughs> it was, and it wasn't just so much a matter of uh, guarding it as it was it put the residents, uh, you know, the citizens of the county in danger. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, by having a target on it, essentially. Now, it was that munitions plant near, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed that, that was probably near a railroad. No, no, no. It's, okay. uh, it's the area that is primarily uh, bush conservation area. Now. Oh, okay. Uh, in fact, you can still see some of the um, ammunition bunkers throughout that property. Okay. It's, I'm going to have to check that out. I've never even, yeah. I never even knew that was there. So I'm learning something new. It, it is a great story. It's, uh, it's a sad story in a way because you had these three towns that pretty oh. much the government and said, you're moving. You don't like the offer, you're moving. Right. Eminent domain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Howell, Tuner, and... Mechanicsburg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was actually four towns. Then. Four towns, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. But uh, mm-hmm. that was the, it was the time we were in, and I guess you could say that, you know, here in St. Charles County, we've been in unique times throughout the history going back to... Forts that weren't really forts. <laughs> right, right. Well, you're a published author, and um, among them, uh, you've written O'Fallon, A Great Place to Live, 1856 to 2003. Can you tell us a little bit about your books? And Well, um, actually, I'm not the principal author. I, I did um, contribute. I'm a contributing author on that book. Okay. That was a project that we undertook for the sesquicentennial celebration in 2006. Um, the committee for which I chaired, 
um, I kid that I I got the job because I knew how to spell sesquicentennial. <laughs> <laughs> but after that project, I ended up um, working with the publishing company that um, published that book for us as what they call a contract author. Um, So in other words, if an organization uh, or a company wanted their history written, um, but they didn't have someone internal, they would contract with me to do it. And so, you know, with some research and some interviews, right up my alley, right? I love stories. I love to listen to people's stories. And I love to tell people's stories for them. Because the most rewarding thing for me in that work was to sit down with people uh, and when you first start to interview them, oh, I, I, I didn't do anything. I, you know, I, I don't remember that much of that. That You know, I didn't have anything to do with that. And after about 30 minutes of engaged, you know, prying, <laughs> all of a sudden it just pours out. And it's wonderful to watch that happen. I enjoyed that. So I, a total of 25 books on everything from country clubs to um, universities to boat manufacturers, glove manufacturers, fraternities, sororities, and my favorite group to write for were the rural electric cooperatives. I, I just I did a total of seven across the country. And um, again, you know, Midwestern values, you, you're rural, uh, you don't have the service that you need desperately. And so guess what? We get together and we build it ourselves. And I just love that mentality. Love Absolutely. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm hearing you say, and, and I couldn't agree more, is preserving history. And, and very often I have these discussions with people that come into museum and they start telling me about their grandpa, their sure. uncles and that. And I said, have you got this road down anywhere? Mm-hmm. written down and and they say no and i said well, when when are you going to start yeah right because um you know the, the you're right the very first step is starting them talking right and then very often it, it just goes from there but you know it, it's kind of a plea that i would put out there and say you know we have military veterans you have military veterans in your family how long are you going to wait to right. start preserving their stories? Well, I think people are intimidated by the process of putting words together, you know. And, and it. I wish they didn't feel like that because it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if your syntax is right or your spelling is all right. It doesn't matter. Just put it down. Well, and I agree with that completely. There's people like you and like, I think Marsha here and me, and, and mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, just Becomes, let them babble. It's okay. Yeah. You know, we'll capture it, and, and we, right. we can weave it into a story. And and um, I think that that's important just to get get the story out. And, and it, I think you're dead on, Pat. Yeah. It, it, Is there anything else that you can think of that you'd like to share with us? Well, it just, what just came to mind was um, my own mother, actually, um, she passed away last year at 101, and um, as she reached the end of her life, and, you know, what happened last week was, was escaping her, but 1932 she could remember perfectly. And so um, I would spend afternoons with her, writing all that down. 
And after she passed, then I put it all together with photos, and uh, that's her story, and gave it to each of her grandchildren, you know, in a binder. And I, I would like to encourage everybody to do that, to do that, because I, I discovered years and years and years ago when um, I started in genealogy, doing my own family's genealogy, and I, I could go back to the 1600s, but all I had were names and dates. And I thought, I don't know anything about these people. I don't know what they did for a living. I don't know if they were rich or poor. I don't know what they did for fun. Did they farm? I don't know. I know nothing about them. And so maybe, you know, people get discouraged because they say, oh, my kids don't care about that. Well, guess what? Their kids and their kids and their kids just might, you know, because we tend to think of history History gains its value with time. So um, put the stories down. <laughs> Great feedback. Powerful advice. Thank you so much, Pat, for uh, joining us today in uh, the studio here to uh, really just share some history of O'Fallon. And thank you for your passion of preserving history for us. And uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off of the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. Join us next time on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum as we welcome Sergeant Benjamin DeMullen and Staff Sergeant David Berger. Beginning in 1973, America went to an all-volunteer military service. An all-volunteer military isn't without challenges. Today, the branches of services are struggling to find able-bodied recruits. According to the CDC, an estimated 70% of young Americans are unfit for military service. Historically, family life has not always worked for military families, and roughly 20% of the military are women. Others say the combination of low unemployment and the ease of finding private sector jobs means fewer young people join the service. The Marines are likely the only branch of service to make their quota in 2022. Join us next week when our guest will be Sergeant Benjamin DeMullen and Staff Sergeant David Berger, local St. Louis recruiters.